You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hey folks, welcome to a special bonus interview. A few weeks after we did the episode on White Sands, I had the pleasure of speaking with the director of White Sands, Roger Donaldson. It's a quick interview. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. What for you was the break or the opportunity in order to start making films in the U.S.? Was it The Bounty? No, The Break for me was really a film I made called Smash Palace. It was a film I made in New Zealand. And took it to the Cannes Film Festival, I guess it was 81, I think it was. Some American critics saw the film there and fell in love with it and started promoting me internationally because I hadn't really stepped outside New Zealand much, much at that time. And the film sort of got noticed here in America. And um, David Brown and Richard Zanuck, two uh, U.S. producers, approached me about coming to America and doing a film here. And it was a project called A Shattered Silence, written by Abby Mann, who wrote Judgment at Nuremberg. And so I came over here and started working on that project, but that went into turnaround, never got made. And then I met Ed Pressman, a, a, an American producer, who got me to sign on to do uh, to direct a sequel to Conan and to be involved in writing a, a script for that project. Not long after I started on that, I met Dina De Laurentiis, who um, had bought the rights to Conan, and he persuaded me to give up on Conan and to... Uh, do the bounty. So the bounty really was my first foreign international film, and that was, you know, I was hired here in America to do it, even though I finished up doing most of it in England. The bounty was such a big picture, and especially just that cast. That cast is amazing. I know that folks weren't who they are today. You know, Anthony Hopkins, obviously he was a star, but he wasn't the Anthony Hopkins that we know today. But my God, what a performance! Tony was, you know, known as a very talented actor, but he hadn't really, you know, done any of his major work at that stage. And Bill Gibson, of course, you know, he'd, he'd done Mad Max. He really wasn't that well known either. But I, I, the real credit goes to Debbie Lee Williams, who was the casting director on it, and she brought people like Daniel Day-Lewis and Liam Neeson to, the, to my attention, and she put together a fantastic cast. I'm very curious about how you came to make No Way Out because The Big Clock is one of my favorite noirs and I'm you know always a fan of how we can take something in the past and reinterpret it for the present and you brought that story so up to date with No Way Out. I have to confess I didn't even know it was a remake when I made No Way Out. I thought it was an original script by Robert Garland and um, so after I'd made the film, I was at a function one night and I ran into Mel Gibson and he said, I hear you've done a remake of The Big Clock. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And he said, uh, yeah, no way, it's based upon a book called The Big Clock. So that's, that, was, that was how I got to know there was a movie even called The Big Clock. What was that experience like for you, making that film? Well, you know, I love politics and I love thrillers and, you know, I managed to be in Washington for a lot of it. And then, you know, we built, uh, you know, we did some amazing sets and stuff. So it was a a great movie to be part of. Yeah, your thrillers are just 
out of this world. I just rewatched the November man and I, I really appreciate your, your thrillers, but I also appreciate that you don't just stick to one genre. You know, I wouldn't even know necessarily where to put, say like a cocktail to say like, Oh, well it's this, it's that. Cause there's a little bit of a lot of things. No, no, the truth is I love making movies and I love telling stories and, you know, and I also try and, you know, make my life not be Groundhog Day, you know, just doing the same thing again and again. So I'm attracted to different sorts of stuff and I develop different sorts of things. And, you know, I mean, if you look at like movies I've written myself, like um, The World's Fastest Indian and uh, Spanish Palace, you know, they really don't have very much in common other than they're sort of, you know, the same guy made them. I guess if there was one thing I would point to, it feels like there's there's usually a male protagonist and it feels like they're having some sort of a crisis and, and just having to kind of get their life together. And I would say that that is also there in White Sands, just the whole Ray character. Does he want to stay the small town deputy or does he want to go on this adventure? No, that's probably true. I mean, you know, lots of one's work, you know, is not... Um conscious it's you know subconscious in a way you know what you're attracted to what you're interested in what you feel like you say as a as a filmmaker so some of it's you know it's not like you're going after something it's just what's it, what you're attracted to in a way that you feel confident to and interested in to want to make it i mean like if i look at a movie like well no way out and then say 13 days the, the, the common thread there is really my interest in politics and american politics as a plays out in the world stage, you know, and that's really what got me interested in those films at the very basic level of what, what, how I came to be attracted to them. What attracted you about the story for White Sands? First of all, I love the desert. You know, I just love the sort of, um, you know, there's something about it that been setting a film in around Santa Fe and, you know, it was just, that was very attractive to me. And so it's a little bit of a connection to my sort of film going past, you know, loving the westerns and stuff like that. So there's, it's hard to put into words what was attractive to me, but you know, I love the, I just love the potential of what it could be. That was another one where you just had such a remarkable cast, and I was especially impressed by uh, Samuel Jackson. That was one of his earlier roles, and just he is yes. wonderful in that movie. Thanks. No, he was a great actor to work with. I've read Daniel Pine's screenplay, and there's a lot more of the Molly character that Mimi Rogers plays. Did you shoot that, or did you decide to not even film that? You know, I really, I'd be lying if I said I remember any change to the script. Tell me, what do you remember? What was your experience making the film? Uh, my experience was, you know, Willem Dafoe, who is a wonderful actor to work with, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantano, and, and of course, you know, the legendary Mickey Rourke. And then Sam Jackson and Emmett Walsh, you know, James Redhorn. Now, some of those actors were, you know, me working with American actors at their very best. And, um, you know, so I think it was it was just the experience of making it in a location that I really enjoyed being in and um, being out there on the, you know, on the road. I mean, there were some dramas I remember making it. We had, a, it was a non-union picture and um, the... Uh, Union wanted to unionize the movie, and so that happened in the middle of it. And literally, one day, I was on the side of the road negotiating with the with the producers and the and the union to be allowed to keep shooting and getting the producers to agree to to unionize the picture. So there's stuff that you don't think of as a role of, that you you know as a director you're going to face. But that, I remember that one day that was really quite something. Did you shoot that all on location? Was that all? New Mexico area stuff? Yeah, all around uh, Santa Fe and White Sands. And um, Was that your first experience with a rodeo? 
Yeah, I think it probably was. I can't even imagine how challenging that must be to, to try to film something like that. I didn't remember, you know, I just remember really enjoying doing that film. I mean, you know, it was, that's what I was hoping to find when I came to America in terms of the sort of movies I wanted to make, and there I was making one. I kind of lumped that one in with The Getaway as well, because it seems like No Way Out, White Sands, and The Getaway just really complement one another. And I, I'm very curious what it was like to make The Getaway because of the history with that film, and especially when you have your uh, two lead actors married and, and making one of their first films together. I mean, once again, it was the same sort of attraction to that film, you know, getting out into the the uh, West. We shot around a lot of it around Yuma and uh, Santa, Fe, not Santa Fe, Phoenix, Arizona. You know, it's just I, I just love being in the locations. Tell me a little bit about Species, if you could, because that one feels like a real departure for you. There were a couple of reasons why I was interested in that film. So the first thing was that my agent, Mike Marcus, had gone to run MGM and he got me to read the script and, you know, he was very forceful about wanting me to do it. And I knew him well and I liked him a lot. And, you know, so I was attracted to, you know, just the, the, the idea of making a movie at MGM for Mike. But I also was, you know, it was the beginnings of digital technology. And so I wanted the opportunity to, you know, get throw myself in the deep end of trying to create digital figures and see how they worked in, you know, live action film. And that proved to be very challenging. So, you know, it was really a, a learning curve, really, for me. And then we, we managed to get a really great cast together for it. And once again, I had a lot of fun doing the movie. It's just every single movie I think about for you, it's like, oh, wow, yeah, that had this person or these. That wasn't really such an ensemble of all the guys who are looking for Sill. Listen, casting's everything. And, you know, I really am very difficult to please when it comes to casting. And I know what I'm looking for. And one of the things that I'm always looking for is to find actors who, you know, are totally believable, but also who, you know, you don't get the confused. So I like, I try to cast everybody in very different sort of visually different look, different accents, you know, just so that they, every character has a strong presence on the screen. Was Dante's Peak, was that the first time that you and Pierce Brosnan worked together? Yeah, I guess it was. I, I knew Pierce as a friend, actually, before we did the movie. We, we happened to be uh, both out in... Um, Malibu, living in Malibu, and we became friends out there through some friends, mutual friends of ours. I did want to ask you about the world's fastest Indian because I had heard that that was really a passion project for you, and I and I'm curious how you came to want to tell that story. It started out as a documentary back in the late 1960s, early 70s about the real person, and I came to America with the real guy, and we went to Bonneville, and I shot this half-hour documentary about him. And but he and he was such a sort of character that I always was sort of you know think of you know what, what I could do that would be original and have some connection to America as well as in the audience as well as you know be rooted in my you know home country at the time New Zealand in 1979 I started writing the script so it took from 1979 no, 2005 I guess is when it got released it had a fair old was with me for a long time and I think really what it was 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 my agent at the time suggested that uh, Tony Hopkins would be great to play the lead in it. And Tony said yes. And, and so the movie at that point really, you know, took a big turn in terms of trying to find finance for it. And my wife found some Japanese investors that were wanting to do some something with me. And uh, she was programming a film festival in uh, Tokyo at the time. And so just a whole lot of things fell into place finally that allowed me to, do, to make it. And then my good friend Gary Hannon, he also 
uh, help raise the money. And so it was, it was you know, one of those independent movies that was very difficult to get up and running. But once we did, it was, you know, great to have made it. Always been attracted to road movies. And, the, you know, once again, you know, the sort of, um, you know, often the road movies about the terrible people that people meet along the way. Well, this one was the complete opposite, you know. But when he came to America, I only had amazingly sort of positive stories to tell about his American experiences. And so I was attracted to that too. It seemed like such a sort of, you know, homage to the America that I had uh, also found. How was that for you being a New Zealander and coming over and working in the country? Was there a major difference between the two film industries for you? I was born in Australia and then I went to, I was actually going to be a geologist and I went to New Zealand and finished up living there and became a filmmaker in New Zealand. You know, I think the, the truth was, even though, you know, New Zealand was very inexperienced in terms of filmmaking country at the point that I made those living dogs in Smash Palace. You know, the same process is, you know, making a film anywhere in the world is still the same process. You need people that stick by you, people that are are as talented and committed to the project as you hopefully are. You know, it's just, I found the experiences are pretty similar. Do you wish that you were back making films in New Zealand right now because you could actually be making films in New Zealand as opposed to being stuck in lockdown in the U.S.? Yeah, I wish I was. I'm curious how the pandemic has affected you and and what you've been working on during the time and and what's coming up for you in the future. The positive side of it's been that it's been a time to sort of focus on some scripts and ideas that I've had for a long time and trying to get them down on paper. The negative part of it is that, you know, nobody's doing anything. And so, you know, when, when the pandemic started, you know, I had some projects that were very likely to have gone ahead and they didn't. They were, you know, it was pulled, the plug was pulled on them once the, it was clear that there was a good problem. So, yeah, I'm sick of staying home. I know you did some TV work when uh, in, in your early part of your career. Have you done any more of that or do you plan on doing any more of that here in the States? Well, I think streaming, you know, television is is totally reinvented. You know, the the, the possibilities of what filmmaking is, and so you know, uh, I'm in the process of trying to put together some ideas for you know series. Television once was sort of the poor cousin to feature films because feature films, you know, you could do serious feature films, and there wasn't stuff like that being made for television. But now, you know, television is just totally reinvented itself. And, you know, the quality of the equipment that they're being shown into, you know, big screen TVs with great sound systems. And, you know, watching watching a film on, on at home now is a completely different experience to what it was 20 years ago. I mean, the first time I saw White Sands was on VHS. Yeah, I mean, I've probably got a VHS copy of it here somewhere. No, I mean, that's, for me, the, the exciting part about the digital world, you know, is that quality has just gone so far ahead from what it was, you know, in the, in the analog days. Have you shot on digital? I've always been a great, you know, fan of digital. I was one of the first films. In fact, I think The Getaway was one of the first films edited digitally. The bank job I was, I shot, that was the first digital film I made. I've only shot digital since then. Digital is, you know, definitely where it's at now. And anybody who's still shooting on film is making life difficult for themselves, I think. You know, you can shoot stuff on your cell phone now that looks amazing. Some stuff on my cell phone that was in the main documentary about Bruce McParran. And cars, and some of it I actually did shoot on on the cell phone. You wouldn't be able to tell what you you know. You can't tell what's what. And most cuts in a film that long anyway, so you know you don't really get a chance to look that critically at them. As long as they look sharp and in focus, and they're telling the story, you know, that you want to look at, and you know, now you can put cameras where you could never ever ever put them. You know, ten years ago. 
Mr. Donaldson, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate this. I, I feel like I should have asked more about White Sands, but like you said, it was 30 years ago or uh, over 30 years. No, 30 years ago. 1992, so that's going to be 30 years ago. It's like yesterday, though, part of my memory. No, I, I just love the desert, and any opportunity I get to get out away from L.A. is always appreciated. 